I think it may have been the only sunny Sunday afternoon this fall, but LaDonna and I took the opportunity in the afternoon light to go to a go on a drive in the country. I found a road we'd never driven, and I said, let's just see how far this goes. Long way. It was an awesome drive in the autumn splendor of the central Alberta countryside, and I, I thought as I was driving about the old anecdote about the farmer and the pastor. A new young pastor had come to the small country church and it was his first rodeo, but it was definitely not theirs. He was still trying to feel his way into this pastoring thing, trying to get to know the good people of this great old church. And uh, one Sunday, at the beginning of harvest season, one of the farmers asked him if he would like to uh, take a morning or however long he could sit still and ride along with him on the combine that week. And the pastor jumped at the chance. He had, he had wondered how he might get to know this man. He, this man wasn't one of the, the vocal people of the church, either positively or negatively. He didn't say much. He, he just seemed to be a solid, stable, nice, salt-of-the-earth kind of man. And as they got into the, the, the pickup to drive out to the field, the pastor said, I've been looking forward to this day. I'd love to get to know you and hear what you think our church needs. He didn't verbalize it, but he was also wondering if without asking him directly, he might gain some perspective from this man on on some of the, the cracks that he was beginning to see in what had appeared to be such a nice environment. He had already heard that you shouldn't put person A and person B together on a committee because, well, they're grandfathers had had a disagreement, and the two families had never seen eye-to-eye since. And a few other stories like that. The drive out to the field was mostly in silence. And uh, it was a straight prairie country road with no traffic. So the farmer spent most of the time with his elbow on the window, looking out at the fields as they drove by. And so the young pastor mirrored the posture of his host, looking out the fields at this side, pondering how he could get the conversation going with this man who was obviously an introvert. He finally decided he'd start with where the farmer's mind seemed to be. And he said, wow, it's beautiful out there, isn't it? The farmer said, yep. And there was silence. The pastor didn't know where to go with that, so he went nowhere. And after more silence, it was the farmer who asked the question, so what makes it beautiful to you? And the pastor painted a picture of the brilliant or the the golden grain in the early morning sun, a perfect contrast with the brilliant blue sky, the gentle waving of the wheat and the wind over the contours of the rolling land just seemed to fold together. When he had finished, he flipped the question back at the pastor. So what's in it that's beautiful to you? He expected a response, something like, I see the fruit of hard work, the benefit of a lot of patience, and the providential blessing of good weather. Or perhaps he might hear, I see money in the bank. Another year of security. 
But for another kilometer, there was just silence. And finally, the farmer said, What's beautiful? When the wheat's high, you can't see the fences. And in the silence that followed, the young pastor suddenly realized he'd been schooled. The farmer knew all along his underlying agenda, and in one line, the farmer had painted the picture of God's dream for what their church needed and what by God's grace his church will always be. When the wheat's high, you can't see the fences. And that word picture pretty much summarizes the heart of our passage today from the New Testament letter to the church at Philippi. Turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. If you have a Bible app with you, just grab that. And if you need to download one, just go to bible.com slash app. There's a good one there to download. Turn to the book of Philippians, the second chapter. We're working our way through this letter by Paul this fall. Uh, Paul, the author of this letter, had fought against Jesus and Jesus' church. And he was actually part of dividing and destroying the church of Jesus, this new movement. And yet, Paul came to see in Jesus, Jesus, the man, who as he writes in his letter to the church that he started in the heart of the book of, of the Roman Empire, the city of Rome, he says, Jesus, who regarding his humanity, his earthly life was a descendant of King David, that much we know, but who through the spirit of holiness was appointed, was declared to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. And with this gospel, with this good news of the limitless God, who in his unlimited power and unlimited love, limited himself in Jesus to bring us into his realm of life unlimited. With that gospel, Paul starts the first church in the Western world, literally out of the blue, because of a vision, Paul travels to Philippi and through the conversions of, as, as we saw last week, as Dave showed us, a businesswoman, a slave, and a jailer. Through these three very different people, none of whom had grown up with religious roots in the Judeo-Christian community that our Old Testament comes from, none of them out of those roots. He showed how Jesus came to break all social, cultural, geographical barriers to bring all people together in and under Jesus into his love and under his leadership from which humanity had walked away at the start. Philippi, a Roman colony, proud, proud of having no religion but Caesar. Have any God you like on Sunday in that little building you go into as long as when you walk out of those doors you bow to Caesar the rest of the time. And because Paul dared to proclaim that good news of Jesus in the Roman Empire, he is now in the limits of prison 
but still overflowing with the unlimited love for Jesus and for this church and still filled with unlimited optimism for them, but with some concerns. Concerns about, well, concerns about wheat and fences. Turn to Philippians 2. We're going to explore the first 11 verses of chapter 2, which addresses two questions about wheat and fences. Number one, what makes fences between us higher, more prominent than they really are or than they need to be? And what can I do about it? And number two, how can I allow the wheat to grow, be more dominant and more beautiful than the fences? We're going to read this section a bit slowly. And as we read, would would you think, I'm going to ask you to listen and think at the same time. You can do it. And, and, And just ask, how does this text speak to these two questions? Can you do that? Philippians 2. Verse 1, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be clung to or used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him, Gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And before we look specifically at these questions, let's let's zoom out a little bit and, and put this section into context, into our context here, but also into the context of this letter. We're, uh, we're challenging ourselves this year to, uh, to encourage and inspire each other in what we're calling our triple I challenge. Invite, include, invest. And, and so far, we've talked about the first two from the, from the first chapter of Philippians. In, in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, he talks about partnership in the gospel. That's a big picture word, but it's specifically focusing at their partnership in the money they were giving to Paul and his mission. He's thanking and encouraging them because they are liter- very literally putting their money where, putting their money where his mouth is. That's what they're doing, and we're inviting ourselves to make that a priority with us. Last week, as Dave taught us from the last chapter of or the last half of chapter one, we saw Paul's heart in in sort of that that invite 
part of, of the gospel. He, he talk, calls to us to continue to advance the gospel, push it out. How even his chains could not keep the gospel from being chained and should not discourage them from taking up their role of what he was doing, advancing the gospel. If we believe that what we have in Jesus is for all people who are made or created as God's image, which is all people, we have what all people need and, and what their hearts are really longing for. If we believe that, then inviting other peoples into, into it will, will be a natural thing. This week, as we come to chapter 2, what Paul speaks into very directly and pointedly is, is the second word in our challenge, include. Include. And he points to what it is that keeps us from including other circles, building fences around our circle. He actually started that at the end of chapter 1 where he says, you need not only to advance the gospel, but you need to conduct yourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. The gospel is what we say we believe, but the question is, is the gospel what people see when they look at the church? I, I happen to be in a role where uh, it's almost impossible to not talk about church, even when I'm trying to hide it. When someone asks me what I do, as I've said, I sometimes say, well, it depends who's asking. It can be a bit of a conversation stopper. Sometimes I'm vague and I say, well, I, I do some teaching. I, I do some personal coaching and I do some strategic leadership. And they look at me, oh yeah. Finally I say, well, okay, I'm, I'm the pastor of a church. I try to say it as positively and as inspiringly and as invitingly as I, as I can, but... Sometimes it's hard because I know too well what their silence is saying or what's underneath their, oh, that's nice, response. Too many times when I've asked people if they've ever wondered how God or church might fit into their life, the answer I get back is, is, can be basically something like this. Why would I go to church? I have enough problems in my life as it is. I don't need more. And, and when you probe the reason for that perception of the church, it's, it's basically rooted in, in a couple of things, usually. Number one, their own past experience of church or the experience of their parents growing up in the church. Sometimes it's rooted in their parents themselves. And they say something like, it didn't do much for my parents, just seemed to make them more judgmental and mean. Another answer I get is something like this. Yeah, I have a colleague who goes to church, and she's the most disruptive, divisive, negative person on the team. Or, yeah, I worked with somebody who went to church once, and all they did was complain. Run down the church, and it... It's like I ask myself, why are they even going? Right? It's one of the reasons we so often hear people say today, you know, I'm spiritual. I just don't want anything to do with religion. Because religion divides. Religion destroys. That's what people see. 
That's one of the things that's interesting about Paul being the, the, the writer of this letter because he was part of, he was a growing leader in a movement to divide and destroy the church of Jesus from the outside. But he came to see in Jesus the one who, who, who includes and unites and builds. The question is, are we living it? Are, are we conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel? Are we, are we doing so as fully as we could be? So as we think about that, let's, let's go back to talking about wheat and fences. If the first question is, what makes the fences higher? The fences between us, what makes them higher, more visible, more prominent than they really are or than they need to be? Did you see the answer to that question in our passage? If you're a structure kind of person, as, as I tend to be, and and you try to diagram this passage out, you'll pretty, pretty quickly come to realize that this passage is really structured in the shape of an X. Everything flows into and then out of verses 3 and 4, where he points to the core issue this gospel-advancing church was wrestling with. What he was thinking about in chapter 1 when he said, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. The core issue we all wrestle with because we're humans and that if we don't use the gospel for ourselves, it actually invalidates the gospel when we share it. Can you see it? Verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Verse 4, not looking to your own interests. What is it that makes the fences higher than they need to be, more visible, more prominent than they really are? It's me thinking. Selfish ambition. In other words, what's in it for me? A number of years ago, I was uh, looking for somebody for a certain position, and, and uh, uh, I, somebody had been referred to me, and, and so before I called him, I thought, well, I'll check out some people that I know and respect that know this guy. And I called this one man who was uh, very, very kind, but wanted to be very clear. And he paused for a while and he said, well, he's a, he's a very ambitious young man. I said, is that all I need to know? He said, yeah, pretty much. Selfish ambition is what he was talking about. Vain conceit, what we were talking about a couple of weeks ago, is basically, are you looking at me? Nobody's looking at me. Nobody likes me. Nobody lets me. Uh, lets me. Nobody loves me. This is often surfaced and revealed and exposed by the things that devastate us. When something devastates me, and I can't let it go. Ding, 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 ding. It means I've been making it about me. Selfish ambition or vain conceit. Looking out for our own interests. Simply, what about me? Right? The New Living Translation says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Verse 5. 
Why does Paul identify these things? Because they are what we always have to watch out for. Always have, always will. When we find ourselves at odds with someone, we always have to ask, why is it that this is irritating me so much? Why is it that I feel so strongly about this, so passionately about it? How am I making it a bit mean? Why is it I have to be right? Why do I need to be noticed? This week, as I was pondering this whole thing, uh, uh, Paul's challenge to us with these two words and how so easily we're driven by them, I came across an article in the Atlantic Monthly newsfeed, not, not a Bible-centered newsfeed, obviously. Uh, an article caught my attention because of the title. It's actually, I borrowed that title for the title of our teaching this morning. It's not about your love language. It caught me because, well, as, as I've read, and I, I've used that idea of love languages with each other, uh, um, given some, in, some of my interest in social sciences, I've, I've often thought, you know, that really communicates, but how valid is it? What does the research say? Uh, the article referred to some of that research very briefly, but what the article talked most about was how, or how and why this book by a pastor became so popular. It, it begin, the article begins this way. The idea that there are five distinct love languages may be as familiar to some people today as the idea that there are seven continents, four seasons, or three stooges, which... It's pretty spectacular, he says, for a concept that was introduced in 1992 by a Southern Baptist pastor that was aimed mostly at married Christian couples. And so the, the author of this book wanted to explore this phenomenon, and one of the things they did was they called the publisher, which was a, a very fairly narrow space Christian publisher, Moody Publishers, Good publisher, narrow, not in the sense of bad. Just, don't get me wrong. Um, and and, and uh, very optimistically, the first printing run of that book was 8,000 copies. They had some modest success until around 1999. It took off, and the trajectory was almost straight up. Over 12 million copies have been sold in 50 different languages and an app to go with it. But what's fascinating is, is what he surfaced as to why it took off. Why was it this love languages thing resonated? You know why? Because they missed the point of the book. What 80% of the book is about. Do you know what people heard? What they heard was, wow, now I know why, how I can feel loved. Here's how you need to treat me so that I feel loved. Do a social media search on love language. You know, you'll get, you'll get hundreds of pictures with the caption, wow, this is sure my love language. Here's what happens. The article quotes someone from the publishing company saying this, people who become familiar with the concept without really thinking through the book often think that people should simply express love in the way that feels natural to them and then explain to their partners that that's their love language. Or that the point is to know our own love language just for the purpose of telling our partner what we need, or even to help us find the right partner for us. Which is exactly the opposite point of the book. 
If you read the book, you realize that 80% of the book is about learning how to, well, let's go back to Paul. How to have the same love in humility, valuing others' love languages above our own, looking to the interests of others. That wasn't in the article, but the article concluded this way. The real value of the love languages theory, then, seems to be that when applied as the author advised, it encourages people to simply be more attentive to their partners, to ask questions about how they like to be treated, to consciously express affection and support, to check in about what, as as the author likes to say, what makes their love tank feel full. Perhaps what people misunderstood about the love language theory is similar to what they often misunderstand about love itself. That considering the needs and wants of the other person first, and then adjusting our own behavior and not expecting it to work the other way around is what makes the whole thing work. I'm reading this author of Atlantic Monthly, and I thought, were they just reading Philippians 2? <laughs> right? So whether you've read the book or not, you've thought about love languages. I know you have. The question is, how do you think about them? Is it not the greatest temptation to use this idea to focus on what I am not experiencing? To validate why I am not experiencing what I feel I deserve to experience, right? So what can I do to help lower the fences? Well, what Paul's talking about here is simply replacement therapy. Replacement therapy. We need to identify that what's in it for me question and that selfish, ambitious factor and just replace it with love. What is God's best for them? We need to identify our what about me factor, our vain conceit, and replace it with humility. You see, love and humility begin They only begin when someone else's needs are more important than our own. I can't say I love you and not make somebody else's needs more important than my own. It was years ago as I was working through this passage that I I just thought to myself, so when is it that I say I love you to my wife? I started listening to times that week when I said just when I really wanted to say I love you you know what I realized I realized that most of the time I say I love you I really should be saying thank you for loving me I was responding to something loving she did to me most of the times I either should have said thank you for loving me or boy do I need you you don't know how much I need you We say, I love you. No, maybe we do. But love begins when we put somebody else's needs, somebody else's interests ahead of our own. What would happen if that's the kind of therapy, if that's the kind of relationship counsel we would be open to from each other? Would that not lower the fences between us? You see, we make it about some fine point of of, of belief, what is, what, what is right or what is true. And those beliefs are 
maybe they're significant, maybe they're not as significant as we want, but they're often smoke screens. Many of those beliefs we are so passionate about, they are power plays in our relationship with each other. You see, the problem is not that we disagree. It's that we become disagreeable. So, so do, you, do you see where Paul has taken us? He's, he's saying that the mission of Jesus needs to be ahead of ourselves. But we can only do that with credibility when the needs of others are above our own. You know, sometimes we like to make a big deal about doing a serving project together, going, going out there somewhere and together and serving somebody in Jesus' name. That's not, that's not a bad thing to do. It's probably a good thing to do. But when the Bible, when Apostle Paul talks about serving, he's talking about serving each other. Unless... We do that in the context of an environment in which we are putting each other first and serving each other. It's called hypocrisy. Inauthenticity. Replacement therapy, number one. But if that's all it is, it's just a, it's just a very religious message, a rule to obey and, and we say, well, I can or I can't. Or we say, I'm trying. And ultimately, the what about me factor slips in again. Which brings us to the second question. What Paul speaks most eloquently and passionately about. How can we allow the wheat to grow? To be more dominant, more beautiful than the fences. He actually gives two answers to that question. One comes out of the, the first two verses, the top half of the X, and, and one of the answers comes out of the last verses, the bottom half of the X. And both have to do with Jesus, with what makes the gospel an unlimited resource. And in both of these sections, it's all about how I think. Not just what I think, but how I think at the very core, the core level of thinking which makes me think the things I think. And underneath all of it, all of our feelings are some basic self-centered thinking filters that, that cause the what's in it for me perspectives. By the way, you know what the most common verb in the book of Philippians is? I asked that question this week of a number of people that I knew had read the book many times, had studied it, had wanted to live it, that knew the book. The most common answer, with a question mark, because I knew this was a trick question, the most common answer was, I think it's rejoice, but maybe not. Uh, how, about, how about unity, be united with each other? Nope. The most common verb in the book of Philippians, is think. It's actually, the word in the original language is the word phroneo. I, I tend not to use uh, original language words here because they don't mean anything to us, but I, I want to I use it this morning to, to, so that you can, partly so you can do a Google search on it, just go phroneo in the New Testament and, and learn for yourself how significant this word is throughout the entire New Testament 
the, the and, and it's a word that actually brings thinking and feeling together. The root word of, of this word, phreneo, is the word fren, which is the, the word from which in our English language we get diaphragm, diaphragm. Or it refers to the, the midriff, the, the, the internal organs in the midriff area. You see, in the Greek mindset, our, internal, our, 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 our deep thinking was not from the head. It was, it was a gut thing, which really implies that our mindset is rooted in our heart set. It's, it's why the Bible is very, cl- very clear that we need to love God with all our heart, our soul, and our mind. So, let, let's look at it in the f- verse 2. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, and of one mind. Twice it uses it there. And what is that one mind? It's at the bottom part of the X in verse 5. In your relationships with one another have the same mind, mindset, as Jesus. I'll never change from being a self-referenced person to a serving others person by waiting for some feeling to come over me. Not going to happen. I have to freneo it. There you go. New word for you. Get down to the roots. Develop a, a mind right out of our heart that is saturated with, transformed by, renewed, as Paul says in Romans 12, renewed by the limitlessness of the gospel of Jesus. How do I change my thinking from self-reference thinking to gospel thinking so that the wheat will be high? Well, look, look at how Paul speaks to that first in, in verse, uh, verses 1 and 2. Think, I need, to, I need to think about every situation in light of the gospel, number one, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, that literally this, this as the English Standard Version I think says it, if you have any encouragement from being in Christ, no, it actually says if you have any encouragement in Christ, that's what it is. This is the, this is the status, the, the saint thing we talked about in chapter 1, verse 1, a couple of weeks ago. Do, do, you, do you realize who you are in Christ? It's not about who you think other people think you are. It's about who Jesus says you are. When you accept that he died for you, has risen to be for you in God's presence, you come into him, you have all of him. Do you believe that? Do you see that? When, when, when some of us hear God's word taught and and we lay saying, well, you know, I should. I know I should. And, and then our minds start working with that. I know I th- should thing. And we say, well, I would if I, if I had, right? If I had this gift, I could be somebody. If I had more money, I could do something better, bigger. If I had a better marriage, I could be a better person. If I had. No, the gospel helps us flip that thinking and get out of that cycle Because I have, I can. I am in Christ. I have Christ in me. So in chapter 4, Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's not if I had, maybe then I could. It's because I have, I know I can. Most positive change in any environment happens because people believe it's possible. Same is true in me. And in the gospel, I see something that helps me believe it's possible. Because I have, I can. 
if they have any comfort from his love. By the way, it's pretty well certain that in the, in the three things Paul lists here first, he's reminding of not just of what they have in the gospel itself, but he's reminding them that the gospel is God as Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In the gospel, there's nothing more of God you can have. The entire resources of God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit have been granted you in the gospel. All you have to do is open your eyes and see it and teach yourself by doing replacement therapy, replacing those old self-reference, self-loathing, or self-loving thoughts with the truth about you. I have a secure position, and I am deeply, dearly, powerfully loved by God. The God who I have turned my back on has turned his face toward me, has extended his hands toward me, his nail-scarred hands. And like the prodigal God in a parable has wrapped his arms around me and whispered in my ear, Welcome home. If any common sharing in the Spirit, the Spirit Jesus sent to live in us is His Spirit, a Spirit that unites us in Jesus, a Spirit that creates in us a sense of teamwork in Jesus. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 4, make every effort to keep, to preserve the unity the Spirit has created in the bond of peace. Jesus has, has, has created peace by bridging all meaningful gaps. We don't create peace. We live out what God has created in His Spirit. And then he adds this summary line, if any tenderness and compassion. What he's saying is, if this gospel truth of your status and security in Jesus, the overwhelming and overflowing love of God being made one by His Spirit, if that has touched your heart in any way, just live it out by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in the Spirit. This is what makes the wheat grow high. This is what makes the good news of God believable. Look again at those three things we have in the Gospel. Status, and security in Jesus. Overflowing, abundant love of God. Unity in the Spirit. Do you see how that speaks to the core longings of my heart? Those core, if I had, then I could questions. What is it we long for? We long to be somebody. To be known. To have a name. I grew up in a small town. I was the only one with my name and all the other people with names, they were together in families. Sunday afternoon, I was always excluded because they did family stuff. I so longed to have a name. We've got it. We long to be loved. We long to be part of something meaningful and big, a winning team. And that's what we have in the gospel in totally unlimited measure. And so everything I feel I don't have, can't have, everything I long for, what that should be is a signal to me, a, a signal to remind me to look and to live from what I have in Jesus, the ultimate fulfillment of all these longings. 
And now that we have seen what it is that makes the wheat high, we can, we can think about a question that some of us have, that some of us had when we heard what Paul writes in verses 3 and 4 about putting others' needs ahead of ours, valuing others above ourselves. Some of us looked at that and listened to that and had the same question of a woman that I met a number of years ago who was beginning a journey with Jesus which was transforming her. And then she reads this passage and she wrote me an email. Here's what she said. Mel, I know there must be an answer to this because knowing Jesus has changed my life. But when I read Philippians chapter 2 verses 3 and 4, what I see is codependency. Which as you know, has been a huge piece of my dysfunction. I know there must be a difference, but what is it? The answer to that question is in verses 1 and 2. It's a different motivation. In codependency, I do things to get others' approval, others' love, others' respect, others' attention. Or I do it out of fear that I will lose their approval, their love, their respect, the attention. Which means I am doing it for me. When the gospel shapes me, I can do it because I have those things in Jesus. Now I need to pause right here and say that from the unique vantage point I have, I want to say that I'm very thankful I can teach from this passage today at this time, at this place, because I want to tell you that one of the things I'm hearing more and more, more so than I've ever heard before, is that Ellerslie seems to be a place with people who who love each other and love others. And I'm so thankful that that is what people feel because that is what shows the good news of Jesus is is really good news. It changes me from being a what's in it for me person to an I want God's best for you person. So how can I allow the wheat to grow, be more dominant and beautiful than the fences? Well, verses 1 and 2, live out what I have in Jesus. And verses 5 to 11, simply live out what I see in Jesus. The wonderful Christ hymn, as it's called sometimes, that sums up who Jesus is, what he did, what will be, what we are to see when we see Jesus In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Or we could rephrase that and say, in the challenging your relationships we have with one another, just look again at Jesus, who being in very nature God, who was God, he is God. He didn't stop being God, but he did not consider Equality with God, something to be used to his own advantage, hung on to, and used as an excuse not to serve. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Not only did he step down to being a human, he stepped down to being obedient to God and dying, and not only did he step down and being obedient to God and dying, he stepped down and accepted the most shameful death in the world, death on a cross for us.
working into our minds the love of Jesus. The first Adam, the created Adam, disobeyed God and yielded to the lie that he could become God. In his pride, he grasped after something that was not his to have, and he lost the glory of God. The second Adam, the the incarnate one, obeyed God. In his humility, he willingly gave up the glory he did have to take on something that was not his to hang on to, my sin, my shame, my pain. And when he had completed the task, he sat down with the glory of God and everything under his feet. For some of us, the line is not, I can't do that. For a lot of us, the line is, I don't do that, right? Every time I hear someone say, I don't do that, what I want to do is ask them to go home, read Philippians 5, or Philippians 2, 5 to 11, one more time, and then try to say that. I can do that not only because of what Jesus did in me, for me, but because he promised that if you follow me in humility, doing what you don't normally do, as a servant, serving others in my name, you will be exalted with me. And it's this love that is at the heart of it all that restores us and that calls us to this beautiful table together. As our servers and worship teams come forward, would you ponder, servers come forward to the table if you would, uh, would you ponder just some personal questions and reflect on these questions as you take, because what you're saying is I do need what Jesus has given me in his death. I need it and I have it. Number two, I want to follow Jesus, his path. So in your situation right now that you've been thinking about as we've been talking, what does humility look like in this situation for you? Number two, What's the go-to excuse that the gospel exposes that you need to recognize? Do you say, I can't do that? I can't do it? Do you say, I don't do that? That's not me. Which one is the gospel exposing in your life? And number three, in in the name of the one who let go of everything, didn't hang on to it for my sake, What is God inviting me to let go of today? We're told that when we celebrate this, we're supposed to examine ourselves. These are the kinds of examining things this this teaching today calls us to, to do. But we're also told, examine ourselves and then eat. Which means, I'm dealing with that. And I want to go the way of Jesus. If you can say yes to Jesus, perhaps for the first time, recognizing, whoa, Jesus is who I need. If you can say yes to Jesus, you're invited to come and take this and declare it to yourself and to the world that Jesus is yours, your Savior and your Lord.